0: Hi, I'm Jonathan Edwards, and I want to welcome you to the Jed Breaks Bread podcast. My goal in this podcast is to teach the truth of the Word of God and apply it to our lives that our orthopraxy might be as good as our orthodoxy. May you be blessed. Welcome to episode 31 of the Jed Breaks Bread podcast. I apologize for not... Releasing a podcast last week. I had every intention. In fact, I had a podcast recorded. Um, I re-listened to it and I wasn't really happy with how it turned out. So we're going to re-record the same content as last week, but hopefully in a better and more structured line of thought. What I want to talk about today and what I probably should have done a long time ago in this podcast is explain basically the intro to this podcast. You know, in the intro it says um, that our orthopraxy might be as good as our orthodoxy. Why is that the introduction? Why is that the purpose and the goal of this podcast? Well, I'm going to explain it to you, but let's first define some terms. Let's begin with orthodoxy. What is orthodoxy? Now, you may have heard of orthodox churches, you may have heard of the term orthodoxy used in a negative or derogatory format, and that is true, it's often used that way, Uh, but orthodoxy actually has a rich and valuable history. The word orthodoxy means conforming to a standard of truth, uh, conforming to a standard of measure, So when we talk about orthodox beliefs, we're talking about beliefs or truths that are determined from the Word of God, that are found in the Word of God, and which have been collectively studied for centuries by some of the brightest minds that God has put on the planet Earth. And these truths have been distilled and disseminated to believers, and we have them today. Now, does that mean that the average person's not able to go to the Word of God and get these truths. No, no, everybody can go to the Word of God. But as Peter writes in his second epistle, some truths are difficult and hard to understand. And God has blessed certain men with incredible intellectual capabilities. And those men have looked at the Word of God and with the power of the Holy Spirit, who leads us into the truth, as Jesus said he would do in John chapter 16. These men have cultivated and mined the depths of Scripture to put together a core doctrine of beliefs that are essential to the Christian walk, the Christian faith, to understanding who God is. And these core doctrines, these core truths, are what we call orthodox belief. We'll give you some examples of orthodox belief. Orthodox belief says you must believe Jesus was 100% man and 100% God. Jesus could not have been anything other than 100% man and 100% God. Otherwise, his sacrifice would not have been sufficient to pay the price for sin. Otherwise, he would not have been able to live a perfect, sinless life. In addition to that, you must also believe that Jesus was born of a virgin. Why is that important? Because the sin nature is passed down from male, the father, to the children. In Adam, all sinned. Oh, well, wait wait a minute. How are we all in Adam, Paul? This is Romans chapter 5. How are we all in Adam? Well, we are all in Adam figuratively in his loins, that through Adam, all the descendants of the earth would come about, would come into existence. That Adam not only was our seminal head, but he was our figurative and legal representative in the garden, so that the choice Adam made would be a choice that would stand for all generations of all kinds. Why is it important that Jesus was born of a virgin? He was not subject to the Adamic curse. He was not subject to the Adamic curse. It's critical that you believe Jesus was born of a virgin because if he wasn't born of a virgin, he was subject to the Adamic curse. He would not have been sinless. He would have sinned. Everyone who was born of Adam sins. He was fully human, but he was not a sinner because the Holy Spirit uniquely conceived him in Mary's womb, joining the divine person of the Son with the egg in Mary's womb and resulting in the God-man, Jesus Christ. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's what we call an orthodox view, because without that view... A fundamental part of Christianity is lost. A fundamental understanding of truth is lost. In fact, without that orthodox view, just of Jesus Christ's incarnation and conception, without that view, you might say, Christianity really doesn't have a leg to stand on. Orthodoxy is critically important to the church. In fact, Paul says that the church is the pillar and the support of the truth. I had an entire episode on how the church is supposed to be the pillar and the support of the truth. Orthodoxy is critical. But orthodoxy can never, 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 repeat, never be divorced or separated from the correct practice of the truth. That would be what we call orthopraxy, right practice. Right doctrine goes along with right practice. The two shall be one. They cannot be separated. You can't have orthopraxy without orthodoxy. And that's one of the real challenges, I think, that Christianity has faced in the 20th century. One of the real challenges, from a historical perspective, if you were to take a bird's-eye view of Christianity in the 1900s and the early 2000s, a real problem is this division between those who are orthodox in their beliefs. They have a really rigid belief system. I don't mean to say that in a derogatory way, but they're very committed to orthodox truth. All right? Those individuals, those people, have oftentimes emphasized their commitment to truth, 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 and have given the impression that how you live doesn't really matter as much, but as long as you have the right beliefs, that's good. Now, whether this came about intentionally, unintentionally, or whether it was a criticism from one group to another, it's hard to say, probably a little bit of all of that, You know, the one thing that all unbelievers like to point out with Christians, no matter how conservative or progressive the Christian is, is hypocrisy. They love to point out hypocrisy amongst Christians. So for whatever reason, those who have tended towards emphasizing orthodoxy have been accused of not practicing what they believe. On the other hand of the spectrum, you have movements uh, like maybe... Many of the mainline denominations—Presbyterian, Lutheran, uh, Methodist, etc.—who have emphasized the social aspects of the gospel, doing good works, being a part of the community, doing what's right and just and favorable in your community—and they have emphasized far more the right practice of doctrine. And in order to do that, one of the things they've done is they have whittled away their doctrinal statements. So that instead of having 12 or 14 or or more points of faith that you say, this is our doctrinal statement, this is what we believe, you whittle that down and you narrow it and you narrow it and you narrow it so that you're less offensive to people who may not hold all the same orthodox beliefs that you do. Now the problem with that is you can whittle your statement of faith down so much that it's just Christian in name only. It has a resemblance of Christian doctrine, a resemblance of Christianity. Maybe it uses the name of Jesus, but it can be so weak, so anemic, that it really doesn't stand for anything. And that is a legitimate critique of those who have embraced the social gospel. So you have, if you're looking again, big picture, bird's eye view, historical perspective, on the one hand you have or on the one side of the spectrum, let me say it that way: on one side of the spectrum, you have people who are totally into orthopraxy. It's all about good works. It's all about how we reach our community. It's all about doing good things for other people and and loving Jesus, loving people like Jesus loved people. And then on the other side, you have the orthopra, orthodoxy. You know, right belief, right belief, right belief. We're in our ivory towers. We're studying these things. We can't be bothered to come out of the ivory tower and put it into practice because we're so busy studying. You see, this this is the dichotomy that has been established, the polarization between orthodoxy and orthopraxy. But the New Testament authors, especially Paul, Peter, John, they had no such conception of orthodoxy and orthopraxy being two opposite ends of the spectrum. Rather, they viewed them as two opposite sides of the same coin. Two sides of the same coin that if practiced correctly and believed correctly would result in a life that brought glory and honor and favor to Christ. A life that would be salt and light in an unbelieving world. Think about this. Here's what Paul writes to his apprentice, Titus, in Titus chapter 3, verse 8. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently. Now, what are these things? If you were to go back and read chapter 1, 2, and 3, you would find a whole bunch of doctrinal positions and statements made by the Apostle Paul, including how to appoint elders, proper roles for men, women, young men, young women in the church, how to get saved, the work of the Holy Spirit in salvation. Paul's referencing all of those doctrinal truths and he's saying this is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently. Does Paul want Titus to waver in his orthodox beliefs? No. Paul wants him to be confident and he wants him to speak confidently so that the church who is hearing Titus, will also be confident so that they will know for sure the things that they are hearing, the things that they are learning, the things that they are receiving are in accordance with what God's revealed will to man is. So Timothy is to speak these things confidently so that those who believe in God, those who believed God, think about that, There's a lot of weight found in that statement, believed God. What's the weight that is found there? They believed God and all that God said, all that they knew about God. Now, that could be the writings and teachings that were present in the New Testament era at that time. That most definitely includes whatever Old Testament scriptures these particular people had all that they believed about God was true. And they were to think about it in a right way. And then what are they to do with that? So that those who have believed God will sit back and be satisfied that they have the truth and nobody else does. They will sit back and be satisfied that they have the truth and they're willing to argue their point until they're breathless or until they're dead. They're willing to sit back and argue their particular nuances of some theological point to the point that they drive others away. No. The text says, So that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. What things? Believing God, in other words, all that God said, and being careful to engage in good deeds. There you have it, right there, two sides of the same coin. On one hand, orthodoxy. On the other hand, orthopraxy. The reason you believe God, the reason that you trust everything that the Bible says is not so that you can be self-satisfied, not so that you can just be prideful and arrogant and, and uphold, oh, look at this intellectual learning that I have. No, the reason that you've believed in God, the reason that God called you is so that you would not only have belief in him, know the truth, but that you would do the truth. Look at that. The text says that you will be careful to engage in good deeds. Wait a minute, Paul. You want me to take what I have learned about God, all the beliefs, all the knowledge, and put it into practice in my life on a daily basis? I'm to do everything that I know? Yes, absolutely. That's exactly what Paul means. That's exactly what Paul wants you to do. Paul does not want you to be what my brother-in-law and I jokingly refer to as the frozen chosen. Now, this is a joke between the two of us. And We've noticed that there are people who have very orthodox beliefs or hold the very orthodox beliefs but don't do anything about it. And we just joke about the fact that they are the frozen chosen. You know, they've, they've been chosen. They, they have this belief system, but there's no implementation of it in their life. There's no practice of the truth in their life. Yes, you must do what you know. And here's the thing to think about. Look at it from the other perspective. If you know something is true and good and righteous and acceptable, if you know all of those things about and believe them about one particular topic, but you don't do it, what does that say about you? You don't care. Maybe your belief isn't as strong as you think. You know, I often illustrate this in my classes, Sunday school classes, by saying, how many of us know how to eat and exercise in such a way that would result in us being healthier? You know, losing weight, uh, reducing food-caused disease like diabetes, heart issues, et cetera, et cetera. How many of us know what to do? And almost inevitably, the whole class raises their hands. How many of us believe that so strongly that we put it into practice? And a lot of hands go down. We have an intellectual knowledge, an intellectual assent to what is good in terms of diet and exercise to care for our bodies so that we don't succumb to... Food related illnesses. Now, obviously, you can't prevent every illness by diet and exercise, but there are a lot of preventable diseases that you can prevent with diet and exercise. And that's just the point. What kind of spiritual sicknesses do we wrestle with week in and week out as believers? Because we say, I know this to be true. I believe the Bible, I believe all that God said but I'm not really doing it in my life. Do you have problems in your marriage, in your family? Are you prone to anger? Are you prone to jealousy? Are you prone to coveting? Are you prone to lying? Do you practice those things? Are they beneficial to your family life? Are they beneficial to your work life? I can guarantee you they are not. But when you say, or when I say, I believe the Word of God, and I want to practice orthodox truth, or I want to hold to orthodox truth, but then you don't put that into practice, you're just like the person who says, you know what, I, I recognize I have a problem with you know eating too much food and not exercising, and that's causing all my health problems, but they're not willing to do anything to change it. That's my goal in this particular podcast, is to help you put into practice or to think through and challenge you to put into practice truth that you know. You can't just say, I believe this and do nothing about it. It's impossible. It's impossible. The reality is, there are many, many moral unbelievers, people who don't even know God, who do incredible amounts of good for people all over the world. They donate their time. They donate their money to charities. They are digging water wells for people in Africa. They're sending food over. They're adopting children. They're doing all kinds of wonderful, fantastic, good things. But you know what the prophet Isaiah says? Every good deed that you do, apart from Christ, is like a filthy rag, it doesn't help you get to God. It doesn't make you better in God's sight. Everything that you do apart from Jesus Christ only serves to either harden your heart and condemn you. Or perhaps, perhaps, some of those things can be used by God to point out to you the reason why you're doing them. You're motivated to do them, to be good, because God is good, and you are made in his image. You can use that as a witnessing opportunity to the unbeliever. But the fact of the matter is, unbelievers do all kinds of good things. They can have some excellent orthopraxy, but their orthodoxy is wrong. And we know this, nobody is going to get to heaven by just doing a great orthopraxy, you have to believe the truth along with doing the right thing. And I think that's where maybe the church has gone off the rails a little bit. Maybe if we were to really look at our evangelical churches, our conservative churches, and say, you know, what is it that has prevented us from having a greater effect in our culture? at large, and in our communities as a smaller segment of the culture. Perhaps it's because our orthopraxy is bad. Our orthodoxy is very good, but our orthopraxy is bad. How do you demonstrate the love of Jesus to those in your neighborhood, at your workplace, those in your family who are not believers? do they even know you're a Christian? Do they know that you're interested in doing things that are pleasing to Christ and that you have a love for Christ, not just because it's what you grew up doing, but because he's really changed your life and the practice of your life is noticeably different than the way that they practice their life. You know, when they look at you and they say, boy, your kids are well-behaved and they really obey you and they are respectful, and they honor authority. When they notice that, and they say, other neighborhood kids aren't that way, what's the difference? Are they noticing that? Are they noticing, dads, that you're speaking in gentle and reserved, measured tones with your children? Doesn't mean that you can't be angry, but are you expressing your anger, dads, in the same way that non-believers express their anger? Yelling, throwing things, having a giant fit, I mean, that's not a great testimony for Christ. Women, wives, are you practicing submission to your husband in a way that's visible? Do you do people in your community, your neighborhood, your family, know that, hey, when my husband says no, I'm going to honor that decision? Maybe not what I agree with, but I'm going to honor that decision. And, or do, they, or do they think, oh, she's just going to go find a way to get around what he says. And really, the husband becomes an impotent leader. These are the real practical ways that people observe your life and judge your Christian testimony. They may not know in our culture, they may not know a lot about the Bible. They may not know a lot about Christianity in general. They may not know a lot about orthodoxy. But I think people know when other people claim to be religious. And religious people should act different. That's what they really know. Religious people should act different. Religious people should not be like me. And that doesn't mean that you dress differently, you drive different cars, or all of that kind of thing. That's not exactly how you're to be different. Obviously, we dress modestly. But my point is, you're not trying to be like Amish if you don't know what an Amish person is, an Amish person wears like all black clothing to separate themselves from others. They don't they don't use electricity or modern conveniences to separate themselves from worldly influence and to insulate themselves from other people. And that's a real, real brief rundown. That's probably um, somewhat stereotypical, but but generally true. All that to be said. It's not just like, that person dresses funny, and that's why they're different. No, that person seeks to do things in every aspect of their life that is totally different than the way that I do things. That's what an unbeliever should think. The sum total of their life is just different than the way that I do things. You know, when your unbelieving neighbor is complaining about how terrible his boss is, do you jump right in and start complaining about how bad your boss is? Or do you say, you know, yeah, I have a boss that's difficult to work for, but I work for a higher boss. I I do everything that I can to glorify Jesus Christ. And so despite my boss's difficulties, I try to work hard. I try to just keep my mouth shut and do the best that I can to honor him because that's honoring to Christ. Those are some real practical examples of orthopraxy, doing what is right not just having the head knowledge about it, but actually doing it. Now, this doesn't make it easy to do orthopraxy well. In fact, isn't that what the process of sanctification is all about? One of the best definitions I ever heard of sanctification is this. It's the process of sinning less and being more like Christ. You sin less and you live more like Christ. You you should be able to measure your growth in sanctification. You should be able to measure your growth in spiritual maturity. You should be able to measure your growth in orthopraxy. When you look at the fruits of the Spirit, Galatians 5.22, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. When you look at those fruits, can you go through that list and say, Lord, I'm doing better in this area than I was a year ago. I'm doing better in this area than I was five years ago. Is there measurable growth? Now, that doesn't mean it's going to be easy. You just take a look. Read Romans chapter 7. Look at Paul's wrestling with the flesh. Paul says in Romans chapter 6, the old man, the nature that we were born with, the nature that was the Adamic nature that man was crucified, done away with, he's totally gone, we're not under his influence anymore, but we still have a flesh, we still have a body that is under the curse of sin and that is prone to enjoy the temptations of sin. And therefore, you don't present your bodies to sin in order to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. But Paul says, Yeah, that's easy to say. It's easy to say, don't do that. It's a command. We have the power because of the Holy Spirit not to do that. But Romans chapter 7, here's Paul's confession. Though I know the old man is gone, I wrestle and I wrestle and I wrestle. And there are things that I don't do that I want to do. And there are things that I don't want to do that I do end up doing. And man, I am a wretched man. Who will free me from this body of death? Paul's war was against the spirit and the flesh. The spirit and the flesh. That war is present for all believers. What's the takeaway? Paul was probably the greatest theologian who has ever lived because God revealed specially to him mysteries that had not been revealed to anybody else. And Paul's grasp of theological truth and the depth of his grasp was astounding. And it takes many scholars years to unpack what Paul has written in his writings. And I think that what Paul had in his writings probably wasn't even the full scope and depth of his understanding. What do we take away then? Paul, this great Orthodox thinker, the one who really established orthodoxy by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, struggled with his orthopraxy. But he always wrote about the importance of orthopraxy. Therefore, if you have been called to the great salvation that is found in Jesus Christ. If God has elected you and predestined you from before the beginning of the earth to partake in this salvation, you have a responsibility to live according to that calling. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, 1 through 6. Ephesians chapter 2, 8 and 9. I'm just going to read this for you really quick. Ephesians chapter 2, 8 and 9. Look at what Paul says here. Incredible connection. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. Your salvation, the orthodox view of that, the orthodox view is that it was a gift of God by grace. You didn't do it yourself. God did all of it for you so that no one can boast. But here's the, here's the result of that. Verse 10, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Not to create good books, not to create good syllabi. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. There is an inseparable, unbreakable link between orthopraxy and orthodoxy if you find that you have one more than the other you need to start getting to work you need if you have good orthopraxy but your orthodoxy is poor get to work on that do a good job studying the scriptures making sure that you know exactly what is in them it takes a lifetime to really really master the scriptures But don't be discouraged. God's given you this time. Likewise, maybe your orthodoxy is really good. Maybe you've spent most of your life or your entire life in a faithful Bible-teaching church, and you have learned a great deal about the truth. Maybe you struggle with the orthopraxy part. Look to this verse, Ephesians 2.10, as an encouragement. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. God wants you to do good works, to live out the truth that you know. That's what he has intended for us to do. Not only that we know the truth, but that we walk in the truth. And isn't that what the Apostle John said? That nothing brought him greater joy than to see his children walking in the truth of the Word of God. And I can say this from a pastoral heart. Thankfully, the Lord has allowed me to really grow up uh, around pastoring or being in a pastoral role for a lot of my life. I was a pastor's son. I was an intern pastor here at the Grace Brethren Chapel for Five years before I was officially ordained in 2012, and I've been serving as a pastor since 2012. I can tell you without reservation that one of the greatest joys that I and the other pastors at my church have is to see the people that we teach practice the truth that we explain to them from the Word of God. That is, hands down, one of the greatest joys of ministry, And likewise, the greatest heartbreak, when you see somebody who knows the truth, and they know it's a hard thing, but they know the truth, and they just refuse to do it. There can be many reasons. You want to break your pastor's heart? Refuse to practice the truth. Acknowledge it in your mind. Agree with him. Amen him on Sunday morning when he's preaching but live the rest of your week like that doesn't affect you at all, that it doesn't account, doesn't apply to you. That'll break your pastor's heart. You want to strengthen your pastor's heart? You take the truth that you hear from the pulpit, the truth that you hear from Sunday school class. You start doing that day in and day out. You become accountable to your wife or your husband or to another respected man or woman in the church and say i need to work on the practice of truth i need to do better at this would you please pray for me would you please keep me accountable help me to see the areas where i fail and fall short that my friends that will encourage your pastor and what it will do ultimately is strengthen the local church because the church will be concerned with unity the unity of the membership the unity of the body. They'll be concerned with glorifying Christ and not oneself, and that will result in greater maturity and greater witness and testimony for the gospel. Well, I want to thank you for listening today. I hope that this helps explain to you a little bit why I think orthopraxy is extremely important and why it is something that can't be overlooked And why a podcast that talks about the truth but doesn't talk about practicing the truth is only doing half the job. So my goal then is to do the whole thing, to share the truth with you, and also how you can put that truth into practice so that you see real spiritual growth in your life and others around you see it as well. And ultimately, Christ gets the glory because it's in his image we are being transformed. Day to day until he returns for us in the rapture or calls us home to glory. God bless. Many thanks to Stephen Lore at S. Lore Music Group for behind the scenes production and mastering work on this podcast. S. Lore Music Group is an independent in home studio that specializes in writing, recording, mixing, and mastering. If you need some work done, I encourage you to contact them. Find them on Facebook or email. You want a jingle made for your business? You want something, uh, background music for a certain voiceover project? Contact S. Lore music Group at slore.musicgroup at gmail.com. Tell them Jed sent you. Finally, if you would like to experience this type of teaching in person, you can visit us at the Grace Brethren Chapel. We're located on the corner of State Route 590 and 20 near Fremont, Ohio. Check us out on the web, www.gbchapel.org.